So tonight we're going to wrap up all that we've been setting on unconditional election and, and finish this lesson number 11, which we started last week. And it's a two-parter. We'll finish it today. And so far here on Wednesday nights, I think we've pretty extensively studied the doctrine of election, looked at conditional election but with uh, Arminians, studied it, explored it, and I think refuted it. It doesn't hold up to scripture. We also looked at unconditional election, which is what the Bible teaches. It's upheld. It's very clear that God chooses some. How? According to his own will, his own choosing. It's still, though, that the doctrine, as we know, is hated by many, rejected, making God a moral monster, destroying man and his will, just makes man small. And so many raise objections against it. Others, perhaps more graciously, simply have questions. And so what we've been doing with this lesson number 11, even though we finished technically studying unconditional election, we're coming back for an extra lesson answering some of the top questions and objections that are raised against unconditional elections. That's lesson 11. Last week we covered the first three, and today we're going to cover the last three. It just turned into a two-parter. That's just how it goes sometimes. But in case you weren't here or if you're, if you're a stickler about you know, filling in the blanks and notes, I'll just go over the first three we covered very quickly from last week, and then we'll jump into numbers four through six for today. So we, we after some introduction, we're, we're covering these six, I guess you could say top six questions and or objections raised against unconditional election. The first being unconditional election is not just. That was number one, that unconditional election is not just. Many just feel it's just not, not just that God could choose some and they're chosen, their sins are forgiven. The others, they're not chosen, and, and so they're, they're damned. How is that just when God has the power to choose everybody? And we, we, through plenty of study, we found that Paul himself answered that question in Romans chapter 9. He anticipated that objection would come up, and he answered it himself. Romans nine fourteen through 18. We're not going to go through that again in, in any detail. Just suffice it to say, the conclusion we found is that it's really not, it's not about God's justice. It's not a justice issue, but a mercy issue. God is always just. Some are pardoned by mercy, but no injustice is ever done. For those who are saved, Christ paid for their sins. Justice was served. For those who are not, they're condemned for their own sins. Justice is still served. And God is free to show mercy on whom he will show mercy. We talk about the presidential pardon and and the president pardons some at the end of his term. No injustice is being done. It's, it's simply mercy. And for all those who weren't pardoned, they can't complain that it's, it's unjust because they're still getting what they deserve. They did the crime. They're there for a reason. They're still getting precisely what they deserve. So we spent a lot more time on it than that, but the, the, the objection that it's not just really falls flat. Same goes for the second objection that unconditional election is not fair. And these go hand in hand when, when, you, when you respond that it's, it's not a justice issue, it's a mercy issue. God is always just. People will often say back, well, well at least it doesn't sound very fair. It still just doesn't feel or sound fair that God would choose some, not others. I mean, if God has sovereignly determined our destiny by his choice or lack thereof, how can he still blame people for their unbelief? In a sense, the unbeliever has no choice but to be an unbeliever, so how can he be still rightly condemned for his sin and unbelief? How, how's it fair? He doesn't have a chance. 
you could say. Well, Paul also anticipated and answered this objection in the next passage, Romans 9, 19 through 24, which we also covered in, in much greater detail. And there we found that Paul starts off by rebuking the spirit of the question. Namely that you don't have a right to question God's dealings with his creation. Your, your human understanding of fairness, which for humans is subjective. You're just a piece of clay. God is the potter. And you're basically nothing compared to an infinitely supreme God. So you can't pass judgment on him. Being the creator, it gives him full rights and privileges over his creation. He's free to do whatever he wants with his creation. And being the creator, he's always fair. And so first, Paul really just rebukes the one who asks the question in such a spirit of unbelief. But he does provide an answer, reveals a bit of the bigger picture. Namely, if, that, if God were being purely fair, everyone would just go to hell. Because that's, that's fair. Everyone has sinned, all have fallen short. We're a cursed race. Everyone would go to hell. That, that's fair. The fact that God has allowed us to live is already mercy. But we also learn that God has purposes, though, in, in choosing to save some and not others, which, again, is, is mercy, is grace. And in God choosing to show mercy to some and, and, and his just justice to others, if that reveals his wrath and power and mercy and, and also his, or his wrath and power and justice, as well as his mercy and grace and love, well, that's his prerogative. And indeed, that's what he has chosen to do to reveal the glory of his, his name, his attributes, his character. And long story short, God has purposes in choosing to save some and not others, namely his own glory as his character is on display through his righteousness and justice. So Romans 9 really concludes that God doesn't really need to answer to our human understanding of fairness. He's perfect in all his ways, just in all his judgments. And you don't, you don't sit in judgment of him. You can do your best to understand his ways, but his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Paul, after, after talking about all this stuff in Romans 9 through 11, concludes with just, he's, he's dumbfounded that the, the majesty, the, the wisdom, the might of God, uncom- incomprehensible, all we can do is just give him the glory for being supreme. Well, again, we said a lot more, but that's enough for now. And lastly, number three from last week. Third objection or question. Unconditional election eliminates free will. It eliminates free will, and you could put, and makes us robots. Another a common one, that if, if all this stuff is true, then that means we have no real free will. We're just robots. It leads to determinism which states we can't really make willing choices, or fatalism, which states that our choices don't matter. If God is really choosing based on his will, just obliterates our will, and we're mere puppets or robots before God, and, and, and that doesn't seem right, and that, that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, in short, again, it's really just a philosophical objection to Scripture, and the, the short answer is that's just not what the Bible says. You can, you can say that, you can raise that objection philosophically, but the easy answer is, it's just, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we're not puppets, we're not robots. We have the power of personal choice. We can make willing choices that matter because 
God says they matter. God says they do. He says it's a real choice that has real consequences, so therefore it's true. Where, you know, the Armenians, they go awry because they define free will as the ability to, to choose otherwise. So God can't determine anything for us. We have to have that ability to, to choose otherwise. But where in the Bible does it say that? Where in the Bible is that how free will is defined? Or will in general? It's not. Rather, biblically, our, our will may be defined as the ability to act according to our desires. In that regard, we, we are free. We do what we want to do. And because of the fall, we choose sin. But we're still acting freely. We are still freely choosing sin and rebellion. In this regard, this explains how God can ordain our choices. Yet there's still real choices for us. Because we have no knowledge of God's plans. And at the end of the day, we're still acting according to our desires. We're doing what we want to do. Which is why we're still held accountable and responsible for our choices. That one gets a little more philosophical, but nonetheless, that's where we ended last week. God's not fair. God's not just. Eliminates free will. You could even say some of the top three objections to unconditional election, if this is true. Okay, that was last week. Just summarize an hour and a few minutes. If, if you weren't here or, or want to hear that again, you can check out the website for, for the audio for that. Today, we're going to finish up with the, the final three, numbers four, five, and six common questions or objections against unconditional election and let's just do that now and just get right into it to finish this up so carrying on number four would be it's related to number three of course unconditional election eliminates human responsibility subtle difference but related to number three it eliminates human responsibility and here you could put if you want in parentheses it leads to lawlessness it leads to lawlessness. The objection goes like this. If, you know, basically, if, if all this stuff about unconditional election is true, then none of our actions really matter. And number three, our choices don't matter. Here, number four, our actions don't matter. You know, the elect, the unelect, they're in a category of like, you know, you're, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're still going to hell and nothing you can do about it. So they might as well do whatever they want, live however they want. But even for those who are elected, even for the elect, you know, God's going to save you no matter what because it's unconditional election. There's no conditions. You can live however you want. If you're part of the elect, you can't control that. So you you might as well live however you want to. You might as well live it up and enjoy your sin and, and do as you please. This objection is often a corollary to, to the concept of once saved, always saved. You've heard that before? We'll talk about that later when we get to the perseverance of the saints and, and unpack all this stuff. But again, in short, if God unconditionally elects people, he guarantees their salvation. And, and so they're going to be saved no matter what. Well, some would say, well, then all incentive for holy living and righteous living is lost. And it's going to lead to licentiousness or lawlessness. Well, the, the response here, it's, it's actually you know very simple. Simply that it, it's just a purely baseless objection. It doesn't come close to sticking. I can't think of a single Calvinist who's ever taught, you know, because of this unconditional election, now you can live as you please. You can go sin it up and enjoy your sin because, hey, if you're in, you're in, you're good to go. 
Just because Calvinism holds high the biblical standard of God's sovereignty, that doesn't mean they neglect or reject the equally high biblical standard of man's responsibility. In Scripture, man is everywhere taught to be responsible. You're responsible for your choices. You're responsible for your actions. Calvinists believe that although God is sovereign, people are still responsible to believe, to obey. All people will be held accountable for the choices they made. In fact, every as we mentioned last week, every single place in Scripture where it talks about those who are condemned, what reason does it give? Why are these people condemned? Not once does it say, well, you know, these people are going to hell because they, they weren't part of the elect. You know, God didn't elect them. It never says that. It says they're, they're condemned because they didn't believe. They sinned. And, and they're bearing the wages of sin, which is death, and, and they rejected Christ. They're responsible. The Bible leaves side by side God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And Calvinism accounts for both. That's what makes it the, the right way, because it, it fully accords for what Scripture says about both. And although some might emphasize God's sovereignty, it should never be to the neglect of man's responsibility, because... Calvinism and Scripture teach that man is is responsible, right side by side with God's sovereignty. How they fit together, that that's something you can talk about, and that that can get more philosophical. But you can just say what Scripture says: God is totally sovereign, yet man is responsible for his choices and actions. And so, granted, salvation is not dependent on good works or holy living, but a good tree will bear good fruit. And so Calvinists still hold high a standard of righteous living. And in short, no, you can't just go live as you please, so to speak. But the kicker is, if you're truly saved, you won't want to, because being born again by God's grace, he makes you into a good tree that wants to bear good fruit. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it here for now. We'll, we'll come back to this objection about lawless living, that Calvinism leads to lawless living. Later, when we get to that fifth point, perseverance of the saints, which some would call once saved, always saved, and, and it becomes more of an, an objection at that point. We'll, we'll revisit it. But here for now, it's a pretty simple response. It's just not what the Bible or Calvinism teaches. And again, we just point out historically, many of the great Calvinists have been noted for their holiness. And today we still hold high that the banner of holiness. God is pleased by holy living. But it's grace-driven and spirit-driven holy living, uh, which, which is biblical. Well, number five now, <coughs> unconditional election eliminates the need for evangelism. Unconditional election eliminates the need for evangelism. And this one comes up a bunch. And here I would say you get this sometimes as an objection, but often you get this as a question too. Many, perhaps some of you in the room, as you've been with us studying along unconditional election, that God himself has, according to his, his own will, chosen some for salvation. It might make you think, well, God's chosen them. They're, they will be saved. It's God's made his will known. Why should we evangelize? Like, God will, God will get it done. He's going to save them. It's his will. There's no thwarting his will, no stopping it. So why, why should we evangelize? I kind of feel like the urgency goes down. Maybe you've even interacted with someone, you share the gospel with them, and 
they're kind of they're not really into it and they just go away and, and part of you thinks well you know they're probably not among the elect so just just let them go you lose the urgency to go after them or try again or, or keep praying for them or sharing for sharing with them maybe that's happened to you or some would just simply object like we were saying if god is so sovereign evangelism can can seem pointless He's in control of salvation. He's already unconditionally decided who, whom he's going to save. Nothing can stop him from carrying out his will. So why, why should you bother with evangelism? Why not just leave it up to God? In general, the, the objection here is it, if unconditional election is true, it seems to eliminate the urgency and the need for evangelism. The urgency and the need. This objection... It, it, I would say it carries no weight, but it, it's around for a reason because there are some, I would say, Calvinists who perhaps have fallen prey to it that have lost their zeal for evangelism. But in this regard, I wouldn't blame the system any more than I would blame Scripture because Scripture does, doesn't lower the, the standard, the need, or the urgency for Scripture, which Calvinism accords, accounts for. It's just that some, it, it's on them. They've lost their own zeal. And uh, for various reasons. So uh, this, this, we can answer this pretty directly. And I think we can better account for the need to evangelize. I'll say this. God's sovereignty in, in election. It does not eliminate the need for evangelism. In fact, to the contrary, it establishes it. Far from making evangelism impossible or meaningless... It's actually, and it's only, the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation. That's what makes evangelism possible. Have you thought about that before? I mean, years ago we studied this on a Sunday night. It might, this might ring a bell to some of you, but we're going to take this and run with this a little bit since it's such a big one. But that far from making evangelism impossible or meaningless, it is actually the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation that actually makes evangelism possible. Like, you, it actually has a chance of working because God is sovereign in salvation. Otherwise, it would be impossible. This objection, actually, you can flip the script to total 180 in that, and you can say that if the Armenian side is true, conditional election, then actually evangelism is, is truly impossible and futile and meaningless. If that doesn't make sense, well, let's, let me explain this and explore this for you. Well, we'll cover you guys three points here just to help this one flesh out a little bit more. First point, well, we'll start negative. If God were not sovereign in salvation, then evangelism would truly be impossible. It's kind of the negative slant. If God were not sovereign in salvation, then evangelism would truly be impossible. We'll start with this negative assertion, which... It both refutes the objection against God's sovereignty and actually shows that those who deny God's sovereignty, they're the ones who can't account for or make sense of evangelism. Now, this goes back to everything we studied in the first you know, five lessons about man's lost condition before God. Many people, they, they get this one wrong because they fail to understand what we studied, total depravity and limited ability. Remember all that? Hopefully you haven't forgotten yet. Quick, The quick version of all that stuff. No, we've learned all people have sinned. We've incurred guilt before a perfectly holy God. 
and is sin nature as well. So we're born sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We have a nature problem. We inherit this sinful nature. It's part of our being. In fact, it affects every part of our being, from our intellect to our emotion to our will. And that's why we describe this as a total depravity. Every part of our personhood is depraved, is fallen, and thoroughly corrupt. And it's, it's a nature problem, so to fix this, we need to be changed from the inside out. It's not just an external problem, we have a, a heart problem, uh, an internal problem. And the problem, of course, with that is that we don't have the ability to change our natures. We don't have the power or the ability to change our fallen natures, which is what we need. Just like you can't perform physical heart surgery on yourself, you can't perform spiritual heart surgery on yourself. And so the Bible classifies our condition as spiritually dead. And, you know, the dead, they can't bring themselves to life. That, that's the whole point of calling them dead. That they, they can't do anything. And this is where our limited ability comes into play. Because of our depraved and fallen condition, we don't have the ability to do spiritual good, to merit God's favor, to bring ourselves to spiritual life, to choose God. Instead, the Bible describes our condition as enslaved. Remember, our will is bound and enslaved to sin and to Satan. And so the conclusion that follows, according to Scripture is that given this condition, nobody can save themselves. No person even has the ability to choose God, to even respond to God. It's like a a dead corpse floating in the ocean. You throw the life preserver to it and say, latch on, I'll pull you to safety. It cannot cannot even respond to the call because the person is dead. They, They can't. You can offer all the salvation you want. You can surround them with life preservers, but they cannot respond to the call to salvation because they're, they're dead. Something has to happen first. Someone must intervene. And thankfully, that's what God does. That's what he's promised to do. Like Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him first and calls him first. God must sovereignly act, spiritually quickening the person, enabling them to respond with repentance and faith. God must do that work first. And yes, our response of repentance and faith is meaningful, and salvation comes through that repentance and faith. It's a meaningful choice we make, but apart from God's prior intervention, nobody can make that decision, so to speak. Nobody can repent and believe. You don't have the ability. You've lost it because of the fall. You're enslaved to sin and Satan. And unless God grants you repentance, opens your eyes, gives you a new nature, you'll never believe. You will never respond to the call to believe in Jesus. So that's, we covered all of that you know, super extensively early on. The, the point, though, when you, when you consider all that is if God was not sovereign in salvation, then nobody would be saved. Nobody could be saved. How else are they going to be saved? They're going to save themselves. They're going to choose on their own to believe in Jesus. 
given how deadly our, our sin condition is, we found that's not possible. And if, and if that being the case, if God was not sovereign in salvation, the evangelism is likewise impossible. You get a bunch of people, they're just a bunch of dead corpses out in the water, you're on a boat, you throw out all the life preservers you want. This is the work of evangelism, right? You're trying to save souls. You're throwing out there. You're throwing out the gospel. Hey, Jesus died on the, on the cross for your sins. Repent and believe. You'll be saved. Throw them all out. You'll catch no one. No one will latch on. You'll bring no one in because they're all dead. You don't have the power to bring them to life. God's not doing it. He's not sovereignly doing it. Apart from their choice, right? They have to choose first of their own free will. And then God will, in response, do something. Well, if that's the case, no one will ever change or come to Christ or choose because they can't, because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. So, like, like we said, if, if that were the case, if God were not sovereign in salvation, evangelism would be impossible. You, it would never work. No one would ever be saved. So, you, does that make sense? The first point, it's, it's flipping the, the script on them and saying, actually, if, if what you teach is true... No one's ever getting saved. There's, there's no evangelism. It's futile to evangelize. But thankfully, we know that's not the case. That God does intervene to save people. But first, we'll point out it's those who deny God's sovereignty and salvation. They're the ones who cannot account for evangelism. Now, secondly, second point. Also understand that God's sovereignty and salvation, it actually guarantees that some of our evangelism will be fruitful. Here's the positive side. Because God is sovereign in salvation, it guarantees that our evangelism will be fruitful. The Bible teaches that God has unconditionally elected some to salvation. God orders all things after the counsel of his will, and so that at the right time, he will likewise call and draw these people to salvation. God has also said, he's ordained that he, he wills to use the human means of the preaching of the gospel to do that work, to draw people to himself and to change them. And because nothing can stop God's will of decree, we, we basically have a guarantee that some of our evangelistic efforts will be fruitful. Some people that we share the gospel with will respond and be saved precisely because God is sovereign in salvation. In short, God's promise, you know, you're in, I know this is kind of a very somber picture, but you're on the boat, you're surrounded by just those who have died, corpses around you, and you're, you're throwing out the life preserver trying to bring some ashore or to your boat. But you know that, that God is going to change some people, breathe life into them. They're going to gasp for air once again. They're alive. And, and the life preserver will be right there and they'll grab on. And you'll pull them in. You've done the work of what? Sharing the gospel. You ha- but you haven't, you haven't saved them. God has saved them. But we know that because God has chosen to save some, well, we're going to do that work. We're going to throw the life preservers out there, trusting God to do his part. He has chosen to use us to do that part. He didn't have to. If he had wanted, he could have said, you know, his salvation would be without any human involvement. He snaps his fingers. There's no preaching the gospel. He just 
instantaneously convert someone and reprograms their brain entirely. In fact, he takes them straight to heaven if he wanted to. Could have done all that. But he's glorified to use the human means of the preaching of the gospel to, to scatter the seed across the whole land. You can't control what soil it falls on. There's some good, some bad, but, but God is in control of that. And, and according to his timing and his will, some seed will bear fruit. We can't control that, but we know some seed will bear fruit. Why? Because God is sovereign in salvation. So, the, the point stands, because God is sovereign in salvation, our evangelism will be fruitful. It will bear fruit. Now, I want to point out, the doctrine of election is given in Scripture to encourage people in their faith despite great trials. It was never given to impact evangelism. You know, the fact remains, we have no idea who the elect and the unelect are. We don't have eyes to see that. God's will in that regard is hidden. And so we are to order our lives according to God's revealed will. And God has told us simply to blanket the world with the gospel. Take the seed, throw it over the whole field. You don't worry about, was this patch of soil elect or not? That's, that's never your concern in Scripture. So I want to point that out. You just, you just put the seed on the whole field and, and leave that to God. You preach the good news of Christ to all, exhorting them to repent and believe. And although election is limited, the Bible supports a universal gospel invitation. Because all people, they're still responsible. All people need Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Not all people are saved by him, but he is the one and only Savior. There's no other Savior they can point to. He is the world's Savior, although they don't believe in him. But it's true. Whoever will believe will be saved. That's true. And that's how Christ himself spoke. That's, that's your role. You just scatter that seed to all, trusting God to do his part. But it gives you great confidence knowing that God, because God will do his part in his timing and his will, we're going to see people respond and believe. And that's our joy. That's our mission. So you press on with confidence because God is sovereign in salvation. So we, we don't limit our evangelistic reach in light of election. God's sovereignty guarantees it'll be fruitful. And so we're, we're not trying to be elect hunters making a judgment call like, hmm, is this person part of the elect or not? You have no way of knowing until you're in heaven, until you're, you see the other side, that that's when you'll know for sure. In this life, you never will. So that, that, should, that should play zero part in your evangelism, such a determination, are they elect or not? Even if someone makes a profession of faith, you have no guarantee they're elect. They could be a, a, false, a false fruit, and they fall away later. They were never truly saved. There are people like that. You know, the, the seed by the rocky soil springs up, looks good at first. So even a, a profession, you don't necessarily know they're among the elect. You know who the elect are is those who die in the faith. That's the elect. And so you will know when they die in the faith. But apart from that, that's not your concern. And it needs to be pointed out, uh, election is it's a doctrine meant to encourage those who do believe that God is, is in control and holding on to you. But when it comes to evangelism, you just go out there and preach to everybody, share with everybody, call everybody to believe with great confidence, knowing that God will cause 
seed to, to sprout and to grow. Lastly here, a third point within this point number five. A third point is just, it's namely that it, it's worth being reminded. The same Bible that depicts God as sovereign in salvation also gives us the responsibility to evangelize. The, the same Bible that depicts God as sovereign in salvation also gives us the responsibility to evangelize. The point I'm making here is, you know, uh, this whole discussion aside, even maybe you just you don't know anything about God's sovereignty, free will, all this stuff. You're like a new believer. You don't know about any of this stuff. Well, guess what? You don't you don't need to to evangelize. And the bottom line is, Scripture, plain and simple, gives all believers the duty the responsibility, and the joy to evangelize. Now, God, he doesn't need us, but he gives us the responsibility and the blessing of participating in the unfolding of his divine plan. We get the privilege of being instruments in the Redeemer's hand. And so evangelism, just like prayer, even though God is in control of all things, it's never presented as meaningless or futile. But... Just like we were saying, it's part of our responsibility and it stands side by side with God's sovereignty. And Calvinism believes both. So by no means does Calvinism disparage evangelism. It's part of our responsibility. You are responsible to get out there and share when opportunities rise to, to, to preach the word. That's, that's on you. That's your role that God has given to you. And even if a person really struggles with the concept of God's Sovereignty and, and man's responsibility together. It doesn't change your responsibility. At the end of the day, our evangelistic task is meaningful and important because God says it is. He told us to do it. That's enough, right? A child would have a, a simple childlike obedience. You're told to do something, and so you do it with a happy heart. That, that's ideal, right? And yet we want to talk back and say, well, what about our free will, or is this really just? No, that God has commanded you, called you to share, to preach the gospel, obey with a happy heart. And, and Calvinism accounts for both, certainly, God's sovereignty and salvation and our responsibility. And lastly, just to point out again historically that you go down through the ages, many of the great Calvinists have been great evangelists. Just look historically at some of the great Calvinists throughout the church throughout church history, and they've been noted evangelists preaching the gospel. So in many ways, the objection, again, is hollow. In fact, we can even flip it around, and that it's, it's those who deny God's sovereignty and salvation can't account for evangelism. Okay, last one here, number six. A lot of stuff, but here we are at the end to, to offer up our, you can say, our defense of unconditional election. People level objections against it, or even if you have questions, hopefully it's helpful. But this last one, number six, unconditional election doesn't fit God's desire for all to be saved. It doesn't fit God's desire for all to be saved. And you could, you could phrase this many ways, but that I guess that gets the gist of it. It doesn't accord with, it doesn't fit God's desire for all to be saved. And this, this will get us to a core difference here. 
Now, the Bible does say in, in many places that God desires all to be saved. Like 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, slow, slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Then several other passages say something quite similar. I said the objection would go like this. Namely, that unconditional election can't account for this, for, for that right there, what we just read. Look, God desires all to be saved. And if unconditional election is true, that means God is electing people according to his desire, right? So therefore, God should elect everybody. He desires all to be saved. So if he's choosing by his desire, he should be choosing everybody. But we know that God doesn't choose everybody. So God must not be choosing according to his desire or his will. He must be choosing according to our will, our desire. If that makes sense, the response will hopefully clear things up even more. And just we've got to point out how inconsistent this objection is. Because Arminians, they face the same objection, whether they know it or not or realize it or not. Hopefully this helps you understand where the other side is coming from a little bit more. Arminianism as a system, even from Arminius himself. The foundation of the whole system is God's love. Just a simplifying understanding. It's, it's all about God's love. They're trying to uphold, they're trying to defend God's love. God, he's a loving God. He desires all to be saved. But not everyone is saved. So how do we explain that? How, how, do, we, like, how do we fit that together? God, he, he is love. He wants everybody to be saved. We just read a verse that says that. But not everybody is saved. So they're not, they're not crazy universalists. They know not everybody is saved. So how do we explain that? How do we, under, how do we fit that together? Well, if God, you know, the age-old question, if God is all-powerful and he's all-loving, why is there evil or, or why wouldn't all be saved? Why wouldn't he choose to save everybody? How, how do we answer this? Well, this is where they, they come to rely on free will to defend God's love. God desires all to be saved, yes. But they say he created us with a free will. He chose to do that. And he, cho- he chooses not to overturn our free will. It's like he, he wound us up, let us go, and now he won't stop us. We're now a free being, and, and we're free to, to do what we want, for better or for worse, and, 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 and he's not going to stop it. And so in the end, how come not everyone is saved? How come people go to hell? Well, because they chose. God didn't make any choices here. He's not choosing some and not others. They chose. And so God, God's, God wants everybody to be saved, but his will is thwarted by man's will. Because some, they don't want to be saved. And God says, well, I'm not going to stop you. I'll let you go. And so they, they accept this because they think it keeps God from being a moral monster. Because the other, the other option is that it's just God's will. Some are saved and some are not because of God's will. They, they can't handle that, so they, they go with this other view. But, so first understand the problems with that view we've pointed this out before but it it doesn't actually get God off the hook for condemning billions of people to hell I mean does this really preserve their understanding of God's so called love 
And the answer is no. We pointed this out before, but Armenians still have to account for the fact that God chose to create this world. He didn't have to. He could have created a world where he foresaw everybody choosing of their own free will to believe where none would be condemned because they all chose him. But that didn't happen. Instead, God, he foresaw this world where billions of people willingly, so to speak, choose to to send themselves to hell and, and God just lets them go. Yet God still chose to create that world. He didn't have to. Again, he could have created a world where everybody believes, but he didn't. He created this world where billions of people freely, so to speak, don't believe. So at the end, though, God's still on the hook. His choice is ultimately still involved. And by nature of him being the omniscient creator, everything that happens, it ultimately goes back to him. Now, sadly, though, in trying to get God off the hook, Armenians, all they end up doing is slandering God because they suggest that his will is inferior to man's will. They don't defend God's love. God's still the creator who made this world. He's still on the hook, so to speak. And all they do is slander him for suggesting his will is inferior to man's will and that God bows down and submits himself to our will. And that is thoroughly unbiblical. Still, though, how do we answer it? How how do we say... Okay, God, God desires all to be saved. Not all are saved. Uh, how do we explain that? Well, the, the answer is that God's desire for all to be saved is made subservient to his other desires. God has multiple desires. Sometimes they conflict. And so we can say that although God desires all to be saved, there's something else he desires even more. And this takes precedent. And this isn't just, I guess you could say the old word double speak. You know, you say one thing, you mean another, just kind of talking in circles. No, the Bible speaks of two wills of God. Remember, this several months ago we referenced this, but we'll do it again. Two wills of God. We've got the hidden will and the revealed will. The will of decree, the will of command. These two different wills of God. And we, we did the Bible study of this a while ago, and just for the sake of recap, I'm just going to repeat it, the gist of it here. God's hidden will refers to all things that actually come to pass. This is his ordained will, his will of decree. What will take place in this world? All of God's secret decrees about how human history will play out. Sometimes God reveals this hidden will, like in, in Daniel's prophecies when he revealed how the Babylonian kingdom will fall and the Medo-Persians will come and the Greeks and the Romans. That was all God's plan. He ordained the rise and the fall of those nations. It's his hidden will. Normally it's hidden. Every now and then it's revealed, but typically it's hidden. And it's how history will play out. Um, the The other side of God's will, his revealed will, which is contained in scripture, God's, sometimes called God's moral will, his will of command. This now refers to God's will for his creatures, for us, how we should live in his creation. These are God's decrees, their commands for how we should live, what he wants us to do. The thing is, though, sometimes God's revealed will and God's hidden will come into conflict. They're not the same. 
that they contradict, what happens? Well, some examples will help. Take murder. Well, very clear. Is it against God's revealed will to murder? Yes. Okay, that is against God's will. We can say it is never God's will to murder. Revealed will. But at the same time, would you say that God willed the death of Jesus? He sure did. There's countless verses that speak about that. But that was murder. That was an unjust death. So look, in, in a revealed sense, the death of Jesus was against God's will. Right? They were all sinning. There was unju- injustice. There was murder. There was mistreatment. That was all against God's will. But in another sense, it actually was all according to God's will. It all happened according to his plan. The, the death of Jesus was in accordance with God's will, even though those involved were breaking God's will, his revealed will. The same can be said about any sin in general. Is it God's will for humans to sin at all? No. I mean, that's clearly his revealed will. Don't sin, ever. Okay, there's God's will. Never sin. But that, that doesn't always happen, right? We sin. We are violating God's will. But at the same time, he's ordained that. He's ordained that. It was against God's revealed will for Satan to rebel against God. For Adam and Eve to eat of the tree. That was against God's will. But at the same time, didn't God will for that to happen? Wasn't that part of his ordained plan in a hidden sense? Of course it was. I mean, this really begs the question. I mean, if God really didn't want humanity to fall into sin, why did he let Adam and Eve fall? Why let the serpent in the garden? Why even put the tree in the garden? He could have done a, a million things otherwise to guarantee they never fell. But you see, it was part of a plan. He has a plan, and he's working all things according to his will, his will of decree. And the answer is, well, why did God let Adam and Eve fall? He knew they were going to do it. The answer is, he had some other reason for it. Sure, they were breaking his revealed will, but he let that happen because he had some other reason, a greater reason for allowing them to sin. And what's that other reason? The reason given in Scripture is his glory. In short, his glory. God created all things and works all things to the praise of his glory. Now, we say this so much in the past, we won't take it much further right now, but in short, when you hear that answer, some people, you respond one of two ways. Like, okay, what's the answer? Oh, he, he did all, he's doing all this for his glory. He's, he's allowing sin and evil for his glory. Some will, some will say, okay, I get that, you know, to a degree, right? God, he does all things for his glory, and although we can't fathom it, he's, he's glorious. Others, though, that doesn't sit well with them. It doesn't suffice. Like, that's not a good enough answer. And the problem there is they have a really tiny view of God and a big view of man. And so hearing that God does all, does all things for his glory, <coughs> excuse me, it's not going to sit well with them because it, it's diminishing to man and it, 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 it just, it's, it's offensive to man's natural mind. But here you can go back to Romans 9. In fact, why don't you turn there real quick to Romans chapter 9. Excuse me. 
where we learned last time that everyone and everything in this universe is really just a piece of clay before God. He's the creator. You need to just meditate on what it means for him to be the creator of everything. Spoken by his word. He is glorious and worthy of glory. And God has every right and prerogative to fashion this lump of clay we call the universe however he wants. He can do whatever he wants. If God wants to use some tiny specks of clay to reveal his love and his mercy and his grace... Well, he will, to the praise of his glory, and he will get glory. And if God wants to use some other specks of clay to reveal his justice and righteousness and wrath, well, he'll do that too, to the praise of his glory. And God, he does no wrong. You may not fathom it, because that, well, that's because you're that speck of clay. That's why. But God is doing no wrong. Again, Romans 9, look at 21 through 24, like we read last week. He says, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called. Not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. God is sovereign. God is supreme. And the better, the quicker you come to terms with that, the better off you will be. It doesn't mean some of these questions won't go away because, look, God is higher than us and it's part of our human nature to have these curiosities. But it takes you from a place of doubt to a place of faith. It takes you to a place of the skeptic attacking to the believer just trying to understand. And there's nothing wrong with that. Coming from the place of faith, saying, Lord, show me your glory. Show me more. That's what God wants. As opposed to the one who, who tears down and tries to uh, attack and oppose because he doesn't understand God and his glory. And that's the world. But let it not be us. In general, though, the, the real question here, the better question to ask is, it's not... Why does God not save everyone? That's not the right question. The right question is, why does God save anyone? Because remember, no one deserves this. No one deserves salvation. Everybody deserves judgment. Why does God not save everybody? The real question is, why does he save anyone at all? Because if you were being perfectly just and fair, or or I should say only just and fair, everybody should just go to hell. That would be perfect justice and God judges all evil and and no one gets out. The fact that God shows grace to anyone is amazing and makes him worthy of praise. That's up to God. It's his prerogative to show mercy on some or all. But you can't call God unloving or unjust or unfair just because you don't understand his ways. He's the sovereign and the judged. They're simply getting what they deserve. The, the, The saved, they receive mercy. And that is up to God. Why does he save anyone? Because he's a gracious God. Because he's a loving and merciful God. And he wants to show his mercy on some. Now this last objection here and, and these last few points. It provides a good transition to the topic of reprobation. Remember that term? We mentioned it once or twice. 
And that concerns God's relationship to the unelect. Does God actively predestine people to hell? Does he actively predestine people to hell? Or does he merely pass over them and leave them to their own devices? That subject we'll come back and study next Wednesday. We'll get, finally get to that. I thought that would be toward the end of this study. It's, it's perhaps a more controversial one, but God's relationship, we've covered God's relationship to the elect. They're chosen unconditionally according to God's will. And this, that'll end that study here. But before we're, we're quite done with this, this section here, we need to address God's relationship to all those who aren't saved. People like Pharaoh, where it says that God hardened Pharaoh. What, what does that mean? How, how does he do that? Is that fair? Well, that's all next time. So that'll be a big one, but come back next week and we'll try and wrap things up with this election discussion talking about reprobation. Tim? Has the Armenian view Right. That's our meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Just clarification. Yeah. No problem. Okay. Well, that'll finish this off for tonight. A little bit more to go, so we'll see you next week for that study. Let me finish this in a word of prayer. Our God, our Redeemer, we thank you for our study tonight. And although we're really spending our time defending Calvinism and in in, in reality, we're just accounting for your word, defending your word. Your word is, is true, and it presents you as being a, a sovereign, a supreme God, a big God. You're not a tiny God in a box. You are the creator of all things. And and we need to spend time just contemplating, meditating who you are, the God who can make everything just with his word. We, we can make hardly anything, and certainly nothing that lasts, yet your, your power, your immensity... The fact that you know us at all is is mind-boggling, and that and that you choose to save anyone at all is is truly amazing. That's the amazing part, Lord, because we all deserve a just judgment. For those here who've believed in you, we are vessels of mercy. Why us? We we don't know. We can't say, but we can praise you and thank you, Lord. And I pray that's our response. That we take seriously these truths and and put them into action. That far be it from us not to evangelize. Or not to live holy lives because we, we use the excuse, you're in control, what's going to happen is going to happen. Lord, you everywhere give us the responsibility and I, I pray that we, we worship you as sovereign, yet take seriously the call to, to live holy lives, to evangelize, to, to live out the faith. So give us this right balance tonight, Lord. Give us you know, an understanding of these truths where we, we cut it straight, we marvel at your glory, and yet we live uh, we live for your glory as well, Lord. So bless us in this study and, and give us more wisdom. We come back next time to, to learn even more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.